Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 3, Paul writes, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. In chapter 12, Paul's mind and heart and evaluations, if you will, have focused on this subject of service. Paul wants the Christian to put learning into practice. Paul is convinced that it's not good enough that you just know a whole lot about salvation and sanctification, but that you begin to live your lives as if that's true. Paul wants our doctrine to become our duty. He wants our belief to become our behavior. We sometimes misunderstand that word duty. We think of it as a drab obligation or some sort of religious requirement. Not so, Paul says. Paul has already said, I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God in verse 1. He has said, I'm pleading with you based on what God has done in your life. Our motive is love generated by God's mercies. We serve Christ based on his mercy. We serve each other based on grace and mercy. Our motive is love generated by God's mercies. We serve Christ. But the passage is also going to remind us that we serve each other because of Christ. And so... Paul will use the illustration of a sacrifice on the altar in verses 1 and 2. And now he provides another illustration. We're members of a body in verses 3 through 8. Service in the body of Christ begins with personal dedication in verses 1 and 2. Consecration and transformation. And then continues with an honest evaluation of the spiritual gifts that we possess in verse 3. Paul asks that we think about ourselves in the right way, with the right motives. That we think about ourselves in the right way, with the right motives, based on God's perspective in Christ. Paul encourages us to be honest with ourselves, honest in our estimation of ourselves, Honest in our abilities and gifts that God has given to us in order that we might minister to one another, encourage one another, 
motivate one another, pray for one another, provide, if you will, that, those things that are necessary for maturity and health. Later in the chapter, Paul will use another illustration. We're members of a loving family in verses 9 through 10. And then he will use yet another illustration. We are soldiers or combatants, if you will, in a mutual battle in verses 14 through 21. And so in verse 3, look what he says. For I say, through the grace that's been given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. He's speaking of a spiritual mindset, an attitude. Paul, in effect, says, as we speak about spiritual service, and before we speak about spiritual gifts... Let's have a little talk about our attitude, our mindset, our frame of reference, if you will. Paul knew that misunderstanding concerning spiritual gifts and roles could cause confusion. Confusion in the way we think. Confusion in the way we live. Confusion in our roles of ministry. So Paul wants to liberate us from this confusion and set us free. Free to serve Christ and to serve each other. That's the idea. So what does Paul mean when he says, do not think of yourself, or one is not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think? Paul is pointing out at least several things, but let's begin with Christians make two primary mistakes. They either think too highly of themselves or they think too little of themselves. And so how do we do that? We fail to have an honest evaluation of our spiritual condition. We fail to have an honest evaluation of our spiritual gifts. And so in order to think rightly, not too highly and not too little, what are we supposed to do? We ask ourselves, who am I? What is my ministry? What are my gifts? What is the place of service that the Lord Jesus Christ has called me to? Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, It's not wrong for a Christian to recognize gifts in his or her own life and in the lives of others. What is wrong is the tendency to have a false evaluation of yourself. Nothing causes more damage in local churches than a believer who overrates himself and tries to perform a ministry that he or she was never called to do, unquote. Wearsby makes another note that, again, sometimes the opposite is true. People undervalue themselves. We sometimes overvalue, we sometimes undervalue. Both attitudes are wrong. And so Paul writes... I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you. Paul's message is in fact based on his own giftedness. I say this based on the grace that's been given to me. What grace is that? It's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's salvation by Jesus Christ. It's placement in the body of Christ. And so when Paul's Messages to everyone, to everyone who is among you. 
When Paul is writing, remember he's writing to the Romans. And so he's writing to the rich and he's writing to the poor. He's writing to male and female. He's writing to Greek and slave. He's writing to young and old. His message includes everyone. Every single person in the body of Christ, every single person who's been born again by the Holy Spirit, every single person who has been consecrated and then dedicated, every single person who has been consecrated, dedicated, and transformed, he basically says, you should not despise your spiritual gift. Think highly but not too highly. The word translated highly is interesting. In the original language, it's hooper, thrown in. Hooper means high. Thrown in means to think. And so it came to mean to think above or to think above a certain stasis if you will. It's, it only occurs here in the Greek New Testament, but a similar idea is found even in verse 16. If you just go down a little bit where it says, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Another way of saying that is, mind not the things, but condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits. We as believers can call for a humility checkup. Sometimes I'm very reluctant to go to the doctor. I know that I need checkups. I know know that I need an evaluation. But I'm reluctant to go. And sometimes we're reluctant to have our own little check. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. Be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So how ought one to think of oneself? Paul writes, think soberly. The word is sophroneo. It occurs six times in the New Testament. The root word occurs some 30 times. It's used in Mark chapter 5, verse 5, of a man who's been healed of being demonically possessed. And then he comes into his sophroneo, his right mind. In 2 Corinthians 5, 13, it translates the opposite of insane. It's connected to prayer and watching in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, it emphasizes thinking about yourself in humility. So to think soberly includes the idea of thinking carefully, of thinking free from intoxicants. We might say, think in a balanced way. Think in a sane way. Think in your right mind. In order to think about yourself wisely and accurately and in a balanced way. So for the person who says, well, how am I supposed to think about myself? Maybe I'm the next Billy Graham. I mean, after all, I can talk like Billy Graham. 
What if I preach the gospel and I sound like Billy Graham? Well, by the way, sounding like Billy Graham, does that make you Billy Graham? Of course not. And so somewhere between Billy Graham and thinking, I'm nothing, I'm nobody, I have nothing to contribute, is probably a right way of thinking. If you think you're the next Billy Graham, or if you think you're the next Mother Teresa, if you think that somehow you're the next big thing, then you're probably not thinking right. So what is the principle? I think the principle is, We must accept ourselves accurately if we are to minister to others effectively. That makes sense to you, doesn't it? We have to think about ourselves accurately if we're to minister to people effectively. Who are you? What is it that God has called you to? How has he gifted you? And so, again... We accept ourselves accurately so we can give ourselves effectively. Again, in what sense? We accept our gift and we accept our role in the body of Christ. And if you've come to the conclusion that you have no gift, that you have no place in the body of Christ, then you've come to the wrong conclusion. If you come to the conclusion, I'm the next greatest thing, probably the wrong conclusion. If you've come to the conclusion, I have nothing to offer, you've come to the wrong conclusion. Feelings of insignificance or uselessness or fear of failure. That's not what Paul is talking about. And so there's another principle. If the first principle is we have to accept ourselves accurately, if we're going to give ourselves effectively, the next one is we have to accept others for who they are and the unique gifts that they possess, no matter the gift or gifts. We understand that every gift is given for health and growth and maturity, for the building up of others. So many people have said to me, I think I have the gift of sarcasm. And I go, I don't think that one's in the Bible. The gift of sarcasm, the the gift of tearing down, the the gift of hypercriticism, all of the points of the gift seems to point to maturity, health, growth. Every single person is effective or important to the Lord, and every person is meaningful, and every person is significant, and everybody belongs. And so Paul is going to spell out those reasons with crystal clarity. At the end of verse 3, look what he says As God has dealt to each one a measure of faith, our gifts, our talents, our abilities, our resources, they all come from God. They are given by God. So when Paul speaks of a measure of faith, the context seems to mean not just simply saving faith, although I think that God gives each and every person a measure of faith so that you can hear the gospel, understand it, and believe it. I think that the context here seems to speak of a working faith. 
I think the meaning includes that God has given to each man, each woman, gifts, abilities. And let's take it one step further. Not only gifts and abilities, but the confidence to exercise those gifts and abilities. The way of thinking about it is, well, who am I really? And what am I really? And what are my gifts really? Paul speaks of a measure of faith in verse 3. Then he speaks of a proportion of faith in verse 6, which means both the spiritual gift and the power to exercise that gift for the task at hand. And since you didn't create yourself, and since you didn't create your spiritual gifts, you don't have any right to boast in yourself or, or your abilities. I've told you the story when I was in high school. I'm in my English class, and I feel like it's important that everyone knows my opinion about everything. And my English teacher said, Mr. Geraci, will you please shut up? <laughs> Do you think people will pay to hear you speak? And I went, really? Are there jobs like that? <laughs> I think that that's part of the challenge. Where we take whatever it is that we are and however we are, and we think about it, under the submission and the care and the control of the Holy Spirit. In James chapter 1, verse 17, James writes, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul writes, For who makes you differ from one another? Or who makes you different from one another? And what do you have that you didn't receive now, if you did indeed receive it, why then do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Oh, I have such great hair. Well, God gave you a gene for hair. Well, God gave me this and God gave me that. Well, yeah, maybe. Well, God made me short. I'm very tall for an Italian person. I've checked around. It really is a matter of perspective. Each is given a measure. Do you understand what that means? That means that not everyone has the full measure or the complete measure. No person has everything. But everyone has something. I once heard a self-proclaimed apostle slash prophet boast. He said... I have every single spiritual gift that Paul the Apostle possessed. And I thought, what an idiot. If that were true, how could he ignore Paul's statement in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7? But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. God has given you exactly what you need, in the proportion that you need, in order to love him and serve him, and in order to love each other and serve one another and minister to one another. And since this is the case, that there is no such thing as an ungifted Christian. No one has a monopoly on any given gift or any given ability. Some people might say, well, I'm a hand. Well, so am I. Well, the body doesn't really need two hands. Oh, yes, it does. If you've ever 
hurt one of your hands, you begin to realize just how much you need the other hand. I think the body is comprised of two things. Things necessary for life and things that you can do without, but you live fundamentally different if you don't have it. So how can we ignore what Paul is saying? The truth is, there's no room for conceit, there's no room for pride, there's no room for arrogance. Here's Paul's point. That kind of thinking is insane. Paul suggests that conceit is a kind of spiritual insanity. He says, we being many are one body joined and fitted Together, genuine believers are all part of a singular body, and the body is the body of Christ. And so, look at verse 4, our ministry of spiritual gifts. He says, for as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. He now uses the illustration or the metaphor of the body. And the word function is the Greek word praxis. It comes from a, word, a root word, prasso. It's used some 36 times to mean that which you do, that which you practice, the deed that you do. So we, verse 5, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Every single word in that sentence is important. We, being many, that means the collection, are one body in Christ. In other words, we're not a body separated from Christ, distinct from Christ, disconnected from Christ. And the truth is, if we are disconnected from Christ, guess what? We cease to be a body. I don't know if you've ever lost a limb or you know someone who have. But when you cut off your finger or if you cut off your hand or you cut off your arm, in a very real sense, it doesn't cease to be your finger, your hand, or your arm anymore. You don't keep it in a jar on the mantle and go, that used to be my finger. I know some of you keep your teeth and you go, that used to be my tooth. My suggestion, put it under your pillow. Say goodbye to it. It's not coming back. In verse 5, the body speaks of interdependence. We are connected. And here's his point. We are connected to Christ. And we are connected to one another. And if we are connected to one another apart from Christ, then the connection is only superficial. Again, we know that the human body is made up of complex interdependent systems. We are blood and bones and muscle. And we never realize just how important each member is until something goes wrong. This week, I think I tore the muscle in my, either my neck or my shoulder. And when you tear a muscle or you tweak a nerve... Something goes terribly wrong. In 1999, I was involved in a rollover car accident where I broke my back. And part of the cost for being alive is that sometimes my back doesn't cooperate. 
Sometimes it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. If you've ever had an illness, if you've ever had a sickness, if you've ever had something go wrong with your body, your whole body has to come to the rescue. We have 206 bones in our human skeletal system. We are an engineering marvel. Our bones are rigid so that they provide a support for the body's organs and tissues. And our bones serve as protection for our brain and lung and heart and spinal cord. In the book, The Human Body, Accident or Design, the author writes and, or points out that bones act as levers enabling muscles to move the body. They provide a reservoir of essential minerals. Bones contain 99% of the calcium, 88% of the phosphorus, plus many trace elements needed by the body. In addition to support and storage, bones act as chemical factories to produce red blood cells, certain white blood cells, platelets in the marrow. When a bone is broken, it immediately starts to repair itself. Engineers have continually tried to develop strong, lightweight structural materials, but have yet to devise a substance that grows continuously, lubricates itself, requires no shutdown when it's damaged. So which of the bones in your body, if you could take a vote right now and you go, I want the fibula, the tibia, the patella, the femur, I want it to disappear. How many of you would wish any part of any bone in your body to disappear? None of you. You never realize the place and you never realize the purpose until it's hurt or until it's damaged. We are a body. We are a body that's meant to be together. A few years back, my father died of liver cancer. Not many of us think about our liver. Our liver is three pounds. You may not know it, but your liver is the, perhaps the largest organ in your body. It's larger than your heart. This amazing chemical processing facility performs at least 500 known functions within our bodies. It's such a complicated chemical factory that biochemists have not even remotely developed a machine of any size which accomplishes a fraction of the same function. The liver stores vitamins. It detoxifies poisons. It stabilizes the body's blood sugar levels. It builds enzymes and more. The liver filters enough blood in a single year to fill up 23 milk trucks. The liver also plays an important function in the digestive process. Without your liver working properly, digestion can't take place. Why? Because it interrelates with your mouth, your tongue, your intestines, your stomach, and your pancreas. And if these organs aren't working in perfect concert, there's going to be a potentially fatal Disruption. It's so very, very important that you find out who you are. It's so very, very important that you find out what your role is. You know, so many people will call me on my radio program and they'll ask me the question, do I really have to go to church? And I could say what the Bible says. You know, the Bible says, do 
Not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner of some. And that would be an important verse to cite. But it's not the only verse. Because you see, the truth is we could cite just as easily Romans chapter 12 verses 3 through 8. Because the truth is the church isn't the church without you. The church isn't the church without you. You bring to the church an important place and an important position and an important role and an important function. And when you're not here, we're not well. And someone might say, well, I never thought about it that way. How could you not think about it that way? Your presence or your absence means the presence or the absence of health. And when something is hurt in your body, the whole body hurts. And the whole body has to stop and minister to the hurting portion The church exists to glorify Jesus. Now it's interesting to me, the Holy Spirit's job is to advocate, to convict, to to draw people to Jesus, to teach, to seal, to guide, to intercede, to empower believers. But ultimately, the Holy Spirit's job is to glorify Jesus. And that's why the Holy Spirit shows up inside of you and he gifts you and empowers you and equips you because corporately together, we were meant to glorify Jesus and to point people to Jesus. Jesus and to become an extension of the ministry of Jesus. And so in verse 6 it says having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us let us use them. If prophecy let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Now when it says having then gifts in the English language gift can mean A special talent or a special ability, like playing an instrument or an aptitude for languages. Some of you have an artistic gift. For whatever reason, God has equipped you in such a way that you see something and you can translate it into artistic expressions. But the Bible, when it speaks about gifts, it isn't just simply about the ability to do something or refrain from doing from something. In the Bible, it's a supernatural thing that's given by God through his Holy Spirit. Clearly, the Holy Spirit gives it freely. Like when it's your birthday or it's Christmas and someone gives you a present, you receive it freely. But sometimes our definition clouds our judgment because we don't really think about gifts The way the Bible speaks about them. The Bible speaks of them as having a supernatural source. The Holy Spirit. That it's received by human beings for a supernatural reason. Because you're connected to Christ. And you're connected to each other. So the emphasis in the New Testament, oddly enough, isn't on the ability or the abilities themselves but rather how they function in the ministry that they're called to. Imagine if the heart said, Dudes, look at me. Without me, you're all just a walking corpse. Hey, by the way, if your heart decided to stop beating, what would happen? 
You would die, but before you die, guess what? The blood stops, and so therefore the oxygen stops to your brain, which means that your brain stops functioning and your lungs start, stop functioning. It, the ultimate result is you, you die. That's exactly right. But the organ itself is equipped in such a way to provide a much-needed service. Just like your your lungs, just like all of your internal organs, just like your skeletal system. We all have to work together in order to provide a body that's healthy, a body that has any chance of maturing. And so Paul speaks of gifts according to the grace that is given to us. That means the gifts that are given to us come when we have an experience With the grace of God. That's part of our heritage in Christ. We're given gifts. We're given tasks. We're given purpose and meaning and significance. We have a special gift. The word, by the way, is charisma. We use it in our own culture and language to describe a man or a woman who is appealing. But that's not the meaning in the Bible. It isn't just someone who looks great. It means the expression of a gift that I once heard described like a charm. Some of you ladies have a charm bracelet. Some of you guys who have one see me after the service. But for you ladies who have the charm bracelet, you have little charms that hang from the bracelet. And they're meant to communicate something. And so charisma are like little gifts that hang. And I'm going to suggest to you in a cluster, in a grouping, in a particular proportion, charisma isn't a natural talent. Although God may use natural talents and empower them. So what makes a spiritual gift different from a natural gift? In its origin, the Holy Spirit. Paul's admonition is, let us use them. Since the Holy Spirit is the originator of the gift, and since the gift is given for service, and since the Holy Spirit empowers the believer by creating ministries, that is, opportunities to serve, each believer contributes to the growth Both in numbers and maturity, the spiritual gifts are tools that we use to carry out the functions of ministry. And the function of the gift is the service of the gift. So Paul's main interest in the letters were to teach and guide and grow the body of Christ. And so in the chapter, Paul, remember, has already spoken of consecration. Now, James, I want you to put up the image on the consecration. When, in verse 1, when Paul says, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, verse 1. Paul then speaks of transformation. That's verse 2. Be not transformed by the renewing, be not conformed, but rather transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then in verse 3, evaluation. Do not think more highly, but think soberly. The reason why all of this becomes important. Is there a spiritual gifting apart from consecration? No. 
Is there a spiritual gifting apart from transformation? No. Is there a gifting apart from personal evaluation? You might run the risk of deciding or thinking or coming to the wrong conclusion. You know, it's interesting to me when people come up to me and they say, I want to be used by God. And I go, praise God. What is it that you want to do? And they say, I don't know. This becomes really, really important. In order for you to be an effective minister in effective ministry, you have to know that you've already set yourself aside for the purposes of knowing, loving, serving, and following Jesus. You have to understand and know that you've allowed the Holy Spirit to transform you from the inside out. And you've prayed and considered about your gifts. And we're going to focus a little bit more on the gifts. But suffice it to say for right now, that if you haven't experienced consecration or transformation, if you haven't done the necessary work in evaluation, then the truth is you may find it a little bit more difficult to find your place. But Paul provides a list of the gifts. Paul makes three points that are vital in our understanding of the gifts and their use. Number one, remember what we've already learned. Who has gifts? We all do. There is no such thing as an ungifted believer. For the person who comes to me and says, I think I'm the only one out of everyone who's been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm the one who got shortchanged. I have no known gift. Yeah, you should laugh because it's not true. There is no such thing as an ungifted believer. And number two, the gifts we possess both in number and collection differ. The Lord doesn't give all the same gift in all the same proportion to each and every person. We each possess different abilities. And number three, we're to exercise those gifts for the benefit of the body of Christ. Now this becomes an important point. Because if you have a spiritual gift and you're not exercising it for the body of Christ, then you're misusing your gift. Possibly even abusing your gift. To misuse your gift or abuse your gift is not a good thing. God gives you a specific gift for the purpose of glorifying God in Christ. And so he gives a list. Let's quickly look at the list. In verse 6, prophesying. In verse 7, serving. Again in verse 7, teaching. Again in verse 8, encouraging. Again in verse 8, giving. Leadership. And then showing kindness. And so in verse 6, 7, and 8, he has seven gifts. But the, it isn't exhaustive by any stretch of the imagination. And we're going to look at these individually a little bit later on. Not today. Paul illustrates and highlights and then he makes specific emphasis that these gifts serve the body of Christ. And this is what Paul means when he says, if you prophesy, 
Prophesy according to the proportion of faith. If service in serving. He who teaches in the teaching. He or she who exhorts in that exhortation. In giving liberally. In leading diligence. In showing mercy with cheerfulness. It isn't just enough to simply have the gift. But it's to have the gift. And remember you've already accomplish the evaluation and you are sufficiently motivated to use your gift in a God-honoring way for the purpose of supporting the body, encouraging the body, maturing the body. And once we discover our gifts, then we know in what area we are to make our contribution. We serve not for the purpose of self-exaltation or self-promotion, but for the building up of others. Can you imagine... If all of the attention in the morning is to your lips. Have you ever seen a person where the Botox went bad? For whatever reason, he or she wants to have these full Angelina Jolie lips. And they wind up with this monstrosity that is not proportionate to their faith. And certainly aren't lips the way God designed lips to be. You draw attention to the lips, but it isn't according to the function that your lips are supposed to provide. Oddly enough, the lips, as important as they are, clearly aren't as important as the skeletal system, clearly aren't as important as the heart or the liver, clearly aren't as important as the kidneys. Have you noticed... That people never ever put on their coffee table kidneys. Hey, look at how attractive these kidneys are. Aren't they awesome? But the truth is, if you didn't have kidneys, you would miss them every single day. Your kidneys are what confronts poison and then eliminates it from the body. And so there's a reason why the metaphor is so important. Now, when Paul gives this list, it's not meant to be exhaustive or or complete. There are four lists of spiritual gifts that are given in the New Testament. And next week, we're going to look a little bit at those lists in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 through 10, and then again in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 28 through 30. If you're wondering where your gift might lie and you wonder where you might look for those gifts, you might look in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 8 through 10, or 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 28 through 30, or you might just show up here next week. But to make a long story short, some believers teach that the four gifts that are mentioned in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 about apostleship and prophecy and speaking and interpreting tongues and the working of miracles are for another time. That the time between Jesus' ascension and the death of the last apostle, these people are called secessionists. There are groups of people who for reasons that I will try to explain next week believe that certain gifts have passed away and that they play no function in the post-apostolic church. I personally do not embrace that view. Most who identify themselves as secessionists are reluctant to dismiss all of the gifts because... 
They'll look at gifts like teaching, encouraging, and giving, and make, and they really love that one. Giving, we really believe that one hasn't ceased. Leading, showing kindness and mercy. So there are four different camps of people. Number one, those who believe that the sign gifts or miracle gifts were restricted for the apostolic age. Then number two, those who believe in the continuation of the gifts. A third camp has been identified as a kind of in-between camp. They call themselves open but cautious. They're not really ready to declare that they believe that the gifts have ceased or that the, the gifts continue. They are willing to declare that they don't know at this point, but they're willing to find out. And then there's another camp who have a kind of a coagulated way of looking at it. They pick and choose those gifts that they think remain, but they're not quite certain. But whatever your view, those who embrace Christianity, those who really love the Lord, those who understand and believe that the body of Christ was meant to mature, meant to be healthy, meant to be united, meant to function properly, are all willing to say that members in the body of Christ need to find out what their gift is. And so very quickly, he lists prophecy, but when Paul uses the word prophecy, he doesn't mean to foretell the future. He means to tell the truth. In the Old Testament, prophecy was the gift that God gave to a particular person who was called to proclaim and sometimes explain the will of God in a given circumstance. And sometimes the proclamation included subjects that belonged to the past or the present or the future. But in the New Testament, the prophet speaks of Jesus and speaks of the things revealed by Jesus. So the prophet edifies and comforts and exhorts and reproves and rebukes in all righteousness. Paul says, he that prophesies speaks to men to edification and exhortation and comfort in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse 3. It seems to make sense that whatever Paul meant by prophecy, it had to include Telling the truth about Jesus. And so my question would be, how is that even possible? If the person doesn't know Jesus, doesn't love Jesus. And then he talks about ministry. The word is diakona or diakonia. It was a word that meant serve and serving. And this was the practical expression of service. And I, again, I'm going to suggest to you that it retains a supernatural element. Because you might say, I can tell the truth. You might say, I can serve. But I'm going to suggest to you that there's a supernatural element whereby you tell the truth under the unction of the Holy Spirit. You serve with a supernatural capacity. This is a supernatural ability to minister, to aid, to assist, to build up. And make no mistake about it, if you've ever been in a hospice... And you see people who have a supernatural ability to love and be with the dying. 
If you see people in hospitals who have a supernatural ability to love and be with people who are hurt and injured. If you've been with people who have a supernatural ability to go to Burma, Africa, Asia. They have this supernatural ability to assist. Jesus speaks of giving food and drink in his name, visiting the prisoner. Paul says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of faith. But some people have a supernatural ability to serve. And he says in in verse 8, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Just very quickly, an exhortation just simply means to come alongside. The exhorter is the person who has the ability to show up and say, love you, I'm rooting for you, praying for you. This is the person who's there with you and for you. It means the ability to come alongside and provide comfort, provide encouragement, provide consolation, helping, giving, serving, mercy. They almost always are closely associated with one another. And these are the gifts that are crucial for health. Maturity, growth, stability. You know, I was an assistant pastor of one of the largest churches in America, and there was a time when it was the fastest growing church in America. And I had a bunch of different duties. It fell to me to do anything and everything. I was sort of like a utility player on a baseball team. If you need somebody on third base, put Gino on third base. If you need him on second base, put Gino on second base. You need him to catch, catch. Just put him wherever, wherever, whenever you need it. And so Skip Heitzig, who was the pastor of the church, decided that he was going to put me in charge of the heating and air conditioning of the sanctuary. The sanctuary was a two and a half times the size of our sanctuary. Now our sanctuary is fairly large, but his held almost 3,000 people. Now, i got to tell you something. I couldn't figure out the heating and air conditioning system to save my life. It would be like if you went into a hospital and you, there's a neurosurgeon and the person handed you the scalpel and says they're going to live or die and it's all up to you and you just freeze. Because you know that you're way beyond your skill set. And I said, you know what, Skip, if I lose my job, I lose my job. The truth is, I can't do this. We need somebody who knows what they're doing. We need gifted people in gifted positions doing the gift that God has given to them. And that's Paul's point. We as Christians are called to evaluate ourselves, to know ourselves. We're also called to encourage one another. To provide for one another. To even suggest to one another what we see. You see, the truth is, almost assuredly, the person with a specific gift, you already know who they are. Because they're already doing the ministry. And remember the warning. If you think too highly of yourself, the chances are you might attempt something and you will fail. 
If you think too little of yourself, then the truth is you're going to rob yourself and the body of Christ of making the meaningful contribution that God intended. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, it says, Let nothing, let nothing, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each one of you look out, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. The moment that you do that, you're exercising a gift. The moment you do that where you go, no, I'm not the most important person in the, in the room. I'm the least important person. And you walk into the hospital room. You walk into the living room. You walk into the dining room. You walk into whatever room it is that you find yourself in. And you ask and answer the question, how can I give of myself in this circumstance? The passage gives us a glimpse A tiny glimpse of what a healthy Christian and then what a healthy Christian church looks like. Have you ever been to a gym and you see all of these people and they look so stinking fit and you go, these people don't even need to be here. They're already fit. You go to a hospital and you see so many sick people. And by the way, if you spend a lot of time at a hospital, you sometimes get the feeling that the whole world is sick. The truth is, we need to spend a little time in the gym, don't we? But we need to be willing to go to the hospital when we're needed. A healthy church and a healthy Christian, there'll be real spirituality. There'll be real consecration. There'll be real transformation. There'll be a God-honoring personal evaluation. And then there'll be the discovery of the spiritual gifts. But I needed to talk with you a little bit about your spiritual attitude before we look closely and specifically at spiritual gifts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that even when we have this kind of a message that we, our thoughts and attentions turn to people who are hurt, people in need, people who are experiencing some difficulty. And Lord, again, we pray for them. We pray for healing and wholeness and wellness. And Heavenly Father, we pray that each person will begin to understand and accept and embrace the role that each and every one of us has been gifted to embrace. Lord, we pray that we would have a healthy evaluation, that we wouldn't think too highly, that we wouldn't overvalue ourselves, but that we certainly wouldn't undervalue ourselves. Lord, we pray that we would come to the right conclusion the God-honoring conclusion, the healthy conclusion, and that, Lord, we would walk in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.